Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. When the body of a young gay black man, Jamel Moore, was pulled out of the West Hollywood apartment of Ed Buck, a white millionaire donor to the Democratic Party, the coroner called it an accidental overdose. The police didn't arrest Buck, and the media refused to report on it. But just 18 months later, when a second black man, Timothy Dean, was found dead in the same apartment from the same drug, the police still didn't arrest Buck sparking a series of terrifying questions. Why was Buck still free when two men had died in his home, surrounded by drugs? How much were his wealth and political connections protecting him? And how many more men might have been harmed in that apartment? In White Smoke, America's Chemsex Killer, investigative journalist Patrick Strudwick uncovers the secret world behind this explosive Hollywood scandal. Through original reporting, we discover how a cocktail of power racism, sexual exploitation, and drug abuse had been detonating in Buck's apartment for years, and how it's connected to a wider chemsex scene playing out in queer communities all around the world, one that provides the perfect hunting ground for predators. But those communities are fighting back. In this series, we meet the men who lived a nightmare inside Buck's apartment the friends of the men who died, and the activists who triggered a movement to get Buck off the streets. The book that we're featuring this evening is White Smoke, America's Chemsex Killer, an audible original, with my special guest, investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker, Patrick Strudwick. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, Patrick Strudwick. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Thank you so much, and congratulations on this extraordinary bout of storytelling. This Audible original. I appreciate that. It's been a huge task over several years to bring this story to listeners, to piece together all the information that we needed to, to fully understand what really happened. Tell us a little bit about your investigative journalism background. And before we talk about exactly when 
and why you decided to do this investigation and wound up with this Audible original series. So I've been a journalist here in the UK for the last 20 years. And my background in terms of investigative journalism was an unusual one in that it began 13 years ago when I decided to go undercover to investigate so-called therapists who tried to make gay people straight, conversion therapists, as right. they're known. So I subjected myself to conversion therapy in order to expose therapists in the UK who were doing that. At the time, we knew that this was happening in the US pretty broadly, but not in the UK. That was where my investigative work began. After that, I became the first LGBT specialist reporter in Britain in a British newsroom. And it was really during that period that I began looking into the issues behind this case. So in Europe, principally, we call it chemsex. Chem for chemicals, i.e. drugs, sex for sex. Um, in America, principally, it's called P&P, party and play. And there was a major case in the UK surrounding the serial killer Stephen Port, right. who I'm sure will be familiar to you and some of your listeners. Mm -hmm. Stephen Port was convicted in late 2016 of the murder of four young men. And his weapon was the drug GHB, which is a very powerful sedative and formerly an anesthetic. And he would use GHB to sedate his victims, rape them and kill them. And while that trial was underway, I began talking to principally gay men in London who had been involved in the chemsex scene in London to find out what was going on beyond this famous serial killer. And what I discovered was a hidden epidemic of drugging, sexual and physical violence, all taking place within this scene that was very much behind closed doors because, principally, men are meeting each other for sex, often through dating apps, hookup apps, and meeting in private homes. So you're behind closed doors, literally, and taking mostly two different drugs, GHB and crystal meth. The problem with these drugs is that GHB is very dangerous because it's very easy to overdose and to slip into a coma, stop breathing and die. Meth is very dangerous because as a very powerful stimulant, it can radically alter your behavior. It's pretty addictive and it is so disinhibiting and so kind of supercharging that it can really bring out the worst in people. If you put those two drugs together in a situation where two people are meeting for anonymous sex, you can see how if one of those parties is vulnerable and the other person has abusive or exploitative impulses, it's a recipe for disaster. And so I began to uncover what was happening within this scene, first of all. So that's 2016. Now, the following year, my first love, my first boyfriend from the 1990s ended up in a coma 
from an accidental GHB incident. He his drink was spiked, and later that year, I started dating someone else who'd also been in a coma for several days because of GHB. And so, what was happening is what I was reporting on in a professional capacity was seeping into my private life and people around me, friends, acquaintances, started dying from this same drug. And I just had this sudden, horrible, chilling vision of really, A, what was happening, what was already happening, and B, where this could be heading. Even though at that point, I didn't know that there was about to be another case which threw in a whole different other ingredient. And that ingredient was racism. So in 2017, a year after the Stephen Port trial, the first body is removed from Ed Buck's apartment in West Hollywood, the body of Jamal Moore, 26 years old. And the two of them together, if you look at them, absolutely fit that format that I just referred to. One who is vulnerable, in this case, Jamal, he was young, black, gay, with no residence, and was doing some escorting on the side. On the other hand, you have Ed Buck, an older, in his 60s, very rich, white, gay man who had connections. He had connections in high places within the Democratic Party because for years he'd both been donating hundreds of thousands of dollars. Two key people, both in local politics within the Democratic Party in Los Angeles and national political figures. So there's a huge power difference there. So in 2017, I heard about the Jamel Moore case. But at that point, I didn't know very much. I just thought it could be an accident. It could be one isolated incident. I don't know. But I quickly started worrying because a movement of activists started to spring up. Friends and family of Jamal Moore, along with local activists from Black communities and LGBT communities, started demanding that the police really pay attention because Ed Bark had not been arrested. And I think one of the most stunning initial facts in this case is if you imagine police are called to a house, an apartment building in West Hollywood, with a dead body there, with drug paraphernalia and meth strewn around, and another guy perfectly fine standing over the body. The idea that he would not even be arrested for possession of drugs, it's pretty astonishing. As an outsider, in other words, a British person who, yes, I've lived in California, I've spent a lot of time there, but even so, I'm not an American, I'm not an American citizen. And to an outsider, it's always been very clear to me how hard the police are in America on drugs compared to many European countries. Right. If you're found with a few grams of cannabis, you can be arrested. So the idea that anyone could be found in possession of large amounts of meth and a dead body on their living room carpet and would not be arrested, this, it, this set all my internal alarm bells off. So those kept ringing over the next year. And 
that group of activists kept protesting, kept speaking out, kept giving giving interviews to the media. They were protesting outside Buck's apartment. They were protesting outside the sheriff's department, outside West Hollywood City Council, and still nothing. And meanwhile, the district attorney, Jackie Lacey, was being personally singled out, personally blamed, which is very embarrassing. And what's striking also as an outsider is that DAs are directly elected. And so, of course, their personal popularity really matters to them. Yet she did nothing. So, again, I thought this is this is a really astonishing situation. And I just kept monitoring it. What's going on here? I don't know. I'm thousands of miles away. What can I do? And then 18 months after Jamel Moore was found dead in Buck's apartment, a second gay man, Timothy Dean, aged 55, was then found dead in the same circumstances. A meth overdose and his body was pulled out early one morning in January 2019. And there was a further flurry of media attention. There were further protests. This is now a pattern. Two black men pulled out of one apartment, with the same man standing over him, the same drugs involved, and still no arrest. It was then that I realized this is something much bigger. This isn't a one-off accident. This is a pattern. And if two men have died there, how many more men might have been harmed there? At that time, I just started making a documentary in London about the drug GHB and how it was being used to rape and kill principally gay men. So for the next nine months, I was busy doing that while still monitoring the situation in West Hollywood. But as soon as that was over um, in the September, I got on a plane to Los Angeles and started investigating then. I started interviewing as many people as I could, both directly connected to the case, but also people with more tangential connections, but were able to explain what was happening to Black men in these PMP situations where there's meth and GHB involved. And I sort of thought I'd heard it all down. I thought I'd heard everything there was to know about chemsex or PMP. And I thought I'd heard a fair amount about racism in America. But what I hadn't heard was what happens when those two things meet. And what I began to realize was that there are sides to people's fetishes, which can be informed by racism. And when you add certain drugs to that, you're really creating an extremely dangerous situation. And many of the Black men that I interviewed on my first reporting trip invoked the same thing, which was plantation slavery dynamics. So there were a lot of well-off white men in West Hollywood who would entice young men of color, Black and Latino, to their homes um, with the promise of 
money or drugs or both, or the promise of having sex with other attractive young men when they got there. Because if you host a chemsex party, a PMP party, you can invite 10, 20 people. And if you're an old, unattractive man that owns the house and owns the drugs and owns the mutton has the money, then you can get whoever you want there. And they may not particularly want to have sex with you, but they might want to have sex with all these other people. And when there's enough drugs involved, who knows? The problem being that if you're an older white man who has a particular fetish for black men, I think that we get into problems when that fetish is dehumanizing, when it reduces people to a stereotype, a particular image of a black man, or even particular body parts. And the disinhibition involved with meth and with GHB means that all those dark fantasies that someone might have that normally might remain in their heads are just ripped open in those situations. So you have people um, who might be in need of somewhere to stay, who might be in need of money, or might be need in need of some drugs, either because they're addicted or because they just need some escape because their life is quite difficult. Um, entering into these homes and before they know it, they're being encouraged or forced to do things they don't want to do, either taking more drugs than they want to or having sex with people they don't want to or a combination of both of those things. So that was my first reporting trip to Los Angeles in 2019. And I published a series of articles in early 2020 about my experiences there. But even then, I knew that I was only just scratching the surface. And so later that year, I then began to pull together a team to bring this story to audio, to really go into it in extraordinary depth. And so I spoke to Michael Rice, who is a Black gay filmmaker in New York, who'd made a film in 2017 about how meth was being weaponized against Black gay men by white gay men. And this documentary really opened my eyes to the potential for harm. So we got together um, with a production company in London, approached Audible, and we then spent the next two years making, these, making this 10-part series. You talk to many friends and, and people in the community, in the queer community, uh, that knew Jamel and knew Tim and also knew of Ed Buck. But the thing that really revealed the information that is contained in this book was Dane Brown and what happened to him and the resulting diary that he he kept and the circumstances in which Ed Buck came to the attention of police again, but with far more powerful testimony from Dane Brown. Tell us what happens with Dane Brown and Ed Buck that one fateful evening in his apartment. Yes. Well, Dane Brown is the key person in this case. He was the pivot upon which it all rested because in early summer of 2019, Dane Brown had become homeless. He was living in Skid Row, which everyone has heard of and is notorious around the world and perhaps deservedly so. I've spent time there. He needed an escape, literal escape from, from 
Skid Row, and also a psychological escape. As he said to me, he was trying to escape hopelessness as well as homelessness. And so he started chatting to Ed Buck on a gay dating website, and they met in person. He didn't know anything about who he was. He'd not heard about Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. He just thought that this guy was a kind of intelligent and perfectly nice man. The problem was his own need for escape was so great that really he didn't, he didn't probably see the warning signs. And before long, he was living in Buck's apartment with him. He had nowhere else to go. And at that point, initially, Dane was not addicted to meth. He would do it occasionally as an escape, as I say. So living with Buck, whose fetishes were black men, white underwear, crystal meth, all mixed together, meant that Buck was pushing meth literally into him and constantly pressuring him to take it. And so effectively, the deal was, you can live here for free as long as you take meth whenever I say so. And do whatever I say, really. So Dane was living there, doing more and more meth, smoking and injecting over the summer of 2019. He became addicted while he was there. Addiction to meth, as most people will know, is an extremely powerful situation to be in because if you stop doing meth, that can be very difficult coming off it. But, you know, at that point, he was becoming addicted while also gradually learning about Jamal Moore and Timothy, Timothy Dean mm. and what had happened there. So those two things were kind of escalating at the same time. And it came to a head. He overdosed the first time at the very beginning of September 2019, ended up in hospital, but again, had nowhere else to go. So went back and then overdosed again. And it was the second overdose which would change everything. Buck had given him both GHB and meth. And if you can imagine that GHB is a is a huge sedative effectively. Right. And meth is a very substantial stimulant. So the two things together are a very odd combination. And very dangerous physically because your mm. heart doesn't know what on earth it should be doing. And so it's quite easy to have a heart attack in that situation. He found himself lying on Buck's floor in the very spot that Jamal Moore and Timothy Dean both died in, overwhelmed by meth and GHB. Buck had already slammed the bathroom door into his back when he went for a shower because he was feeling awful. Now he's slumped on the floor and he's really effectively starting to fade away until he began to hear his late mother's voice just ringing in his head, telling him to get up, saying, Dane, get up, get up, Dane. And it was that, the sound of his late mother's voice ringing in his ears that gave him the impetus to somehow get up onto his feet and get out of that apartment once and for all. So you can see him on CCTV footage gingerly 
walking down the exterior staircase of Ed Buck's apartment building, clinging on because he is overdosing in that moment and trying to stay alive and trying to escape. He then makes it down North Laurel Avenue, where Buck's apartment was situated, onto the intersection, and across the intersection, there's a gas station with a kiosk out front. He goes to the kiosk and asks the guy in the kiosk to phone 911. He is taken to the hospital, and they look after him. And even that would not be the pivotal moment. Really, Buck has only himself to blame for everything turning against him at this point in terms of the police. Because what he did was one final act of cruelty to Dane Brown, which is when Dane got out of hospital, he went back to get his things. And Buck didn't want to give him his things. Now, given that Dane was otherwise homeless, unemployed, had very few belongings, but the belongings he did have, such as, you know, a laptop and a phone, were absolutely critical for him to be able to get another job. And this is someone with a degree in computer science. You know, he's, you know, very employable in the right circumstances. Buck refused to give him his stuff. So that was when Dane said, well, I'm going to go to the police. So Dane went to West Hollywood police station to report his belongings being withheld from him, not to report Buck for, you know, forcibly injecting him with meth or bringing him to the point of death. He started speaking to officers there. They went back to Buck's apartment to speak to Buck. They told Dane to go and wait wait for them. Dane went to a local library, sat in a local library. Some point within that, the officers spoke to their colleagues in the FBI. The FBI had been investigating Buck for months. And finally, they have a victim who is ready to talk, who is completely credible, who can give them extraordinary detail, and who, unlike everyone else, had actually lived there for several weeks. And so could give them an extraordinary insight into what was really going on. Yes. So before you know it, the FBI are talking to Dane Brown, and when they have his testimony, they suddenly swoop. And days later, they finally arrest Ed Buck. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for a second to hear from our sponsor. Are you aware that today, on average, it can take up to 11 weeks to be able to hire for an open position for your business? If you're a growing business and looking to hire, you just can't afford to wait 11 weeks. Well, if you're listening today, I've got some advice for you. Stop waiting and start using ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter can help you find qualified candidates for all your roles fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com murder. How does ZipRecruiter work so well to help you hire employees? Their matching technology finds you qualified people and makes it very easy for you to invite them to apply. ZipRecruiter has found that four out of five employers utilizing ZipRecruiter 
get the kind of employee they're looking for in the first day. So speed up your hiring process with ZipRecruiter. See why 3.8 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash murder. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-U-R-D-E-R. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, we just talked about the authorities swooping in on Ed Buck's apartment. What is one of the most profound things that they find or important things that they find at his apartment at that time? Well, <laughs> it's a good question because they had already been there several times. And on each of those occasions, there was crucial evidence available to them. But there was also Ed Buck himself, who would act in a way to protect himself. So we later learned from the testimony of one of the officers on the scene that when police would arrive to, you know, visit the scene of a dead body and then another dead body and then, you know, an overdose victim, Buck would show them around the apartment and show them pictures of himself with powerful and influential people, people in politics he was, he was donating money to. And so the message was, don't mess with me. I've got friends in high places and you do not want to be arresting me. And what was extraordinary is that they were not arresting him. But by the time Dane Brown's testimony was with the FBI and officers and they go to arrest him, the weight of evidence by that point was so overwhelming that there was nothing he could do or say to get out of it. So really, on that final swoop, it wasn't that they found anything new, because they'd already seen the meth. They'd already seen the paraphernalia. They'd already, even after the death of Timothy Dean, discovered a bag containing a box, which in itself had lots of drugs and paraphernalia, that Buck had tossed out of the window after Timothy Dean died to avoid that being detected by police. Right. The neighbor found it, gave it to the police. So they even knew he was discarding evidence and they still weren't arresting him. So by the time they have that, Dane, they make the arrest and that's, that's it. I'm talking, I'm referring to the photos, the cache of photos, the incredible cache of photos, and then everything that they found that supported their case when they did go to trial in terms of text messages and, I said, photos, videos, text messages, emails, explain yeah. some of the evidence that, that Dane Brown was able to provide. Well, that evidence that you're referring to was not so much provided by Dane Brown, nor immediately discovered upon Buck's arrest, but rather discovered by police investigators and data retrieval experts over the following 18 months before the trial. Mm. So they found hundreds, thousands of photos and videos principally, and they were taken by Buck himself over many years and documented his daily obsession with having PMP sessions with mostly black men. So he 
took pictures of people, usually naked except for wearing white underwear, usually black men in white underwear. And he would take endless photos of them smoking meth. You would see white smoke billowing around their faces. That's one of the reasons why we called this series White Smoke. Mm -hmm. You would see them injecting meth. And in the videos, it was like watching a film director with control freakery issues directing an actor. Because what he would do is direct his victims to the most minute degree how to tilt their head in such a way that the smoke came out of their mouth in a particular formation, exactly how to stand, how to hold themselves. And this was the most palatable of the evidence that was later shown in court. What we also saw was videos of him abusing people while they were unconscious. He was sexually assaulting them while they were unconscious and in several cases, it would seem that they were unconscious because of an overdose. And that in itself raised a real moral ethical question about the trial itself, which I put to federal prosecutors, which is this. At the trial, he was not facing any charges of sexual assault, sexual violence of any kind, because all those laws do not come under federal jurisdiction. Right. This was a federal trial. So they couldn't prosecute him for that, for those. Yet, they showed several videos of people unconscious being sexually played with by him, people who were not even witnesses in the trial, some of whom they were never able to identify. There are many victims of Red Buck who we will never know, who may not even know what happened to them. Because if this, if they were interfered with while they were unconscious because they'd been given drugs, they may well still not know what happened to them. Yet that evidence, those images were being played in a federal courthouse in downtown Los Angeles to whomever wanted to walk into that building and, and, and view the trial. Right. So this is an extraordinary situation where people are, you know, in unbelievably terrible states being interfered with, and this footage being seen by complete strangers. But that isn't even the charges that he was up on. And those people may not have even known what happened to them, nor that that footage was being used in a trial. But what was astonishing in the trial itself was the sheer scale of this, the sheer numbers of photographs and videos that were taken. and the number of men that this might have related to, because the police still don't know for sure exactly the numbers. But over many years, we're talking about at least dozens of men, very likely hundreds. And as you say, also, there was streams and streams of text messages and messages on social media and on the dating apps. And you know, in some cases, those messages were more upsetting and disturbing than even the images. Because what you could see beyond the scenes of him assaulting someone or injecting someone or whatever, what you could see was how he toyed with them psychologically. So you had examples of people contacting him, saying to him, what happened to me? What happened to me when I was tied up? What happened to me when I was unconscious? Please tell me what happened. And he would tease them. He would refuse to tell them. 
he would say things like, a picture tells a thousand words. And that cruelty came through again and again. We saw the text exchanges between him and Jamal Moore, who knew each other for about a year before Jamal died. Jamal was going over there regularly over the course of about a year. And at first, Jamal knew nothing about math. And there were these desperate, desperate messages from this 25, 26-year-old man saying, oh, before I come around again and do more meth, I want to, you know, find out a bit more about it. Or he would, Jamal would say that he didn't want to do it again, or would have an excuse for not coming over. And Buck would berate him, would mock him, would disbelieve him. And all, all the time, luring him back again and again and again, until Jamal Moore himself was addicted. He was not an addict when he met Buck. But Buck would begin by giving him lots of money, like $600 on their first meeting, which is a lot of money. And he wouldn't necessarily have to engage in anything sexual some of the time, but he would have to take math. It's an extraordinary case to be paid to take crystal math until it starts to destroy you. And in such a way that the other person, Ed Buck, has complete control over you in a way that he gets off on, that he fetishizes. That as, and as a black man, he already has an existing fetish when you show up. He would do the same thing to so many people. So there would be a kind of ritual. You'd come in, you'd have to take your clothes off, and you'd have to put on the white underwear, either white fronts or long johns. Those were his two things. Then there was a kind of ritual involved in the smoking of the meth, the fetishization of the smoke billowing around the face. There'd be mirrors everywhere so he could see it from different angles. There'd be cameras taking footage of it all while he's directing. This took over his entire life. You talk about slamming. And so I just want the audience to understand that this wasn't just allowing someone doing drugs, encouraging someone to do drugs, but they're actually injecting huge amounts of crystal meth and GHB into the arm of these people continually, constantly, over and over again. So slamming is the kind of slang word used among mostly gay men for the injection of meth. Typically, people don't inject GHB but they do inject meth, and that's referred to as slamming. And as you say, we're not talking about situations of, a lot of the time, we're not talking about situations where people inject themselves, but someone injecting the other person. Now, in Buck's case, there was a range of behavior. So sometimes he would kind of bully them into injecting themselves, not take no for an answer, berate them for not doing it, if they refused to do it, he would phone a cab and send them back to their homeless encampment or whatever. Um, so he would persuade verbally them to do it themselves. He'd also try to persuade them to let him inject them. So he would, you know, bash their vein with a needle. And then there'd be also occasions where someone would uh, come round out of unconsciousness to find him injecting them, which is, as you can imagine, an extraordinarily terrifying situation to be in to then throw in GHB, which kind of upends the nervous system, 
the entire body and your entire psychology at the same time. It denotes someone who wanted to have the utmost control over another person and in such a way that they were really teetering on the edge. Yes. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop for these messages. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, let's get to this trial. And due to the pandemic and the restrictions therein, there is a two-courtroom set up in this trial. Uh, first off, explain that and who is in what room before we talk about some of the dynamics and some of the particulars of what happened at this trial. Yeah, it was extraordinary taking place during the pandemic because, of course, social distancing had to be adhered to. Everyone's in masks and there had to be two courtrooms. So we had one room where you had the witnesses, the attorneys, the judge, the jury, and then another room on the floor above with the public gallery and the journalists, the activists. And so we were sat in this separate room on the floor above with two large TV screens beaming live what was happening in the room below, which was, you know, the trial itself. And there's real problems with this particularly for, I'd say, friends and family, for the prosecution, and to a certain extent, even the, even the jury. In, the, in a normal trial situation, and I've sat through many criminal trials, to have everyone together in one room where you can see and hear everyone informs you quite a lot about all sorts of elements of the case. So, for example, if you can sit in the public gallery and see the faces of the jury members clearly, you can, in some ways, read their reactions to people testifying. You have some hope of seeing if they believe them. And also, jurors can hear and see the reaction in the public gallery when a witness says something outrageous. So, and then, of course, you also have the, the attorneys, the lawyers, who can better detect if the way that they're pursuing a line of questioning and the way that someone's testimony is unfolding, whether it's landing, right? Whether this is having the effect they want it to have. But there was a very sterile environment in every sense of the word and a very disconnected one. So a succession of witnesses would come to the stand. They would describe terrible things happening to them in many cases. People in the public gallery would be incredibly moved. People would be crying. And Typically, also, you would have other witnesses saying completely opposite things. But the jury had no sense of what anyone else was thinking, what the general public might make of this. So it was extremely anxiety-inducing for everyone concerned to not have any instinct about where this was heading. So we were all sat there hearing all this incredible testimony, but we couldn't see the jurors. We couldn't feel... The atmosphere in the room, 
we had no way of knowing if this was all heading in the, in the right direction. Now, Dane Brown prepares himself for this testimony. He believes that his testimony is going to be important. The police believed him, and he wants to do something for the community, the community that he thinks he's representing with this. And he cleans himself up and gets prepared for this trial. Yeah. As you write, he's, he's an effective witness at this trial, isn't he? He absolutely is. What's really moving with Dane, among many things, is that, of course, Buck had got him addicted to meth, and meth is very difficult to come off. And the thing that finally got him off meth was the forthcoming trial. He wanted to be completely level-headed. He wanted to be utterly credible. He wanted to be calm and clear and direct and to tell the truth. So not that long before the trial, which took place in July 21, he finally came off meth, got sober, and over two days stood up in that courtroom facing cross-examination and told the truth. And his testimony really was a cornerstone in the trial because it was so clear that he had more experience than anyone else there of what Buck was like over a long period, over six weeks living in that apartment building. And that coupled with his manner, which is remarkably poised and gentle, actually, for someone who had been through real trauma, um, real horror, real cruelty, to be able to stand up and be um, just sticking to the facts, um, not getting overly emotional, not getting uh, particularly angry, but just telling it like it was with real dignity, that landed. That really landed. And I think that Dane really was the turning point in a trial that was already an onslaught. I'd say all the trials I've ever sat in, it was the most horrifying. There was a moment in the series which was so difficult in terms of how we approached it when during the trial, we were all due to go back into the courtroom one afternoon and we were suddenly told, no, it's been adjourned until tomorrow because one of the jurors um, had an accident. She, we don't know the details about why, but she needed to go home because she had effectively soiled herself. And the concern was that the details of the trial were so awful that it had that effect. We didn't speak to her, so we don't, we don't know the ins and outs. That gives you some idea as to what the jurors were facing what all of us were hearing and what this case really stretches to, which is we, a, a, an extraordinarily cruel debasement and exploitation of human beings. We didn't mention a group that arose from this tragedy, Justice for Jamel, and we did talk about the activists protesting outside of Ed Buck's apartment. This was a powerful vindication for this group and for activists in the community, wasn't it? 
It really was. I mean, they went to a Herculean effort to get this man arrested. To begin protesting in summer of 2017 and to keep going for over two years, despite what appeared to be the complete indifference of the police and the DA and to a certain extent the media. And if I'm honest, the indifference of the white gay community in Los Angeles. This was a group of Black and LGBT and Black queer people, along with friends and family, and they just kept going. They wouldn't shut up. They wouldn't be silenced. They wouldn't go away, even in the face of institutional indifference. Best and four years to the day since Jamal Moore's body was pulled out of Ed Buck's apartment. We had the verdict. And to be in that courtroom and to see the judge deliver the verdict on nine charges, to find Buck guilty of all nine charges, and to see the people in that courtroom just erupt with relief, with tears, with sobbing, with shouting and crying, you know, right from inside that public gallery out onto the street was just astonishing. And again, as an alien to the US, as a British person, what came so sharply into focus was on that day, July 27th, 2021, the day of the verdict. On that day, we witnessed something frankly, almost unheard of in in the American justice system, which is justice being served for Black people. For once, Black people were believed and a white man who had harmed them had been found guilty. That was such a momentous, just monumental event. And the weight of that landed so heavily, it felt like a really historical moment. You know, this is only a year after the death of George Floyd, the murder of George George Floyd, when, you know, the lives of Black people and the deaths of Black people were, you know, only just beginning to really be taken seriously. And to see justice being served was so powerful and so moving. And four years of hard work from all those activists. and hard work over a long period from the prosecuting attorneys too. One of whom, Chelsea Noel, and we talk about this in the series, when I left the public gallery, I looked down the stairwell. The main trial room was in the room on the floor below. I looked down the stairwell and there was Chelsea Noel having delivered this you know, guilty verdict, you know, thanks to her incredible legal skills. And she collapsed to the floor. I've never seen that in any criminal trial. Right. The lead attorney just fall to their knees out of utter relief, out of exhaustion, out of just being overwhelmed. Because, you know, just as for us and everyone involved in the trial, she'd spent months and months and months wading through the most horrific material imaginable, working with dozens of victims, some of whom, you know, didn't want to take part 
or couldn't see it through or went missing. This huge weight of responsibility on her shoulders to finally secure justice in a case that had just avoided justice for so long was enormous. So that moment seeing her fall to her knees, I'll never forget. Because you could see how much it really meant to her. People, I think, don't expect lawyers, particularly you know, federal prosecutors, sure. to be that involved. I think, yeah, we see courtroom dramas and yeah, we see kind of dramatizations of trials where you get attorneys who are a bit too emotionally involved. And I think we sort of think of that as a sort of a bit of poetic license on the part of the screenwriters. We don't really think in actual daily life that lawyers are so involved, invested, that it really means that much to them. But at times, it does. And that was one of those times. Yes. And powerful testimony from Dane Brown that you chronicle in this book, and incredible. I want to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this Audible original series, White Smoke, America's Chemsex Killer. For those people that might want to check out more information about you, do you have a website and do you do any social media? I do, yes. You can certainly find me on www.patrickstrudwick.com. My handle on Twitter is Patrick Strud. Also on Instagram as Patrick Strudwick. And I'm a special correspondent for iPaper in Britain. So you can find me at inews.co.uk. Thank you so much, Patrick Strudwick, for coming on and talking about your original Audible series, White Smoke, America's Chemsex Killer. My pleasure. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Good night.